And if you're new to church, you picked a great week to come because sometimes when you go to a new church or have a new setting, you don't always know what the rules are. So you kind of kind of looking at God and kind of watching the people to kind of see how does this thing flow. Now, me, on the other hand, I feel like a little bit of a spiritual mutt, like I've been to every type of church experience there is. So I typically know what I'm doing because I was born in a Methodist church and got sprinkled there. And then after I got, then I went to a Pentecostal charismatic church, like swinging on the chandeliers, good stuff there, was really fun. Then we, that church fell apart, so we went to a Baptist church, because it's solid, biblical, anchored, and got baptized at 13 years old in a Baptist church, um, all along going to a Church of Christ school, which means I learned to sing a cappella and learned how to really encounter my Church of Christ brothers and sisters. We played Episcopalians and Lutherans in sports, so I got to rub shoulders with them. And then I planted a non-denominational church in Waco. So I've about covered the entire gamut except the Catholic faith, okay? So I have learned more from the Catholic faith in the last two years than, than anyone, and I started to realize, but I've never actually been to a Catholic mass, So I was at a Notre Dame football game, and people were saying, are you going to Mass afterwards? And I was like, no. Like, in my world, that's not what people do. Maybe at UT, they all leave and go straight to church. But in Baylor, we don't leave and go straight to church. But they are running to the Basilica after the the football game. So me and Blair, my wife, start running over there. And we get there, and that's immediately when I realize I don't know what's going on. Like, they're kneeling, they're standing, they're reading, and I'm like, I don't know anything that's happening here. Thankfully, the pre- one priest comes up. He welcomes everybody. And he says, we know that there's some non-Catholics in the room. We're glad that you're here. We're going to be taking the Eucharist communion a little later. And if you're not Catholic, we ask that you not take communion. Um, and we ask that you do this sign. Well, Blair and I were talking at that moment, so we missed the sign. So... He said, or you can not come forward. Well, the priest gets up and gives a beautiful, beautiful message, and it messes me up a little bit. So I kneel. I mean, I'm like closing my eyes, and all of a sudden, I feel this tap, and it's like go time. Are we going to the front or not? And my wife's looking at me like, are we going? Are we going? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And so we just, I did what all courageous husbands do, and I just let Blair lead the way. And so she is leading to the front. I'm following her, and she's looking at me like, is this it? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, what's the sign? So she comes to the front. And she's standing in front of the priest, and my sweet, shy wife looks at me and looks at him and goes. <laughs> and he just kind of starts chuckling a little bit. And he's like, bless you, my daughter, with peace. And she was like, yes, I'll take that, you know? And, and she walks off, and I walk up there looking like I know what I'm doing, like Wakanda forever. I'm like, you know, like. Give me my peace, bro. And he's like, peace be to you too. And we go back and sit down. And I sat down and I had a long time to pray. And I was like, you know, the reason I was even up in that area was not about the football game. I was actually at a retreat center trying to do some deep inner healing because I was like, God, I'm really trying to pursue you. I don't feel like you're pursuing me as hard as I'm pursuing you. You ever been in one of those situations where you're like, God, I need you to come through. And I sat down and I was like, Lord, this kind of feels like my life. Like I'm trying to figure out what's the sign. Like what do I do to get heaven to move? I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I'm not doing it because I don't feel like you're, you're really doing your part of the bargain. So we leave the service. We walk out. I got to find the priest and tell him how amazing this message was. And I, when I did, we kind of did the bro thing. Like you kind of go like this and kind of do two claps on the back. And we did that for a minute, and then he doesn't let go. And I tell him, thank you so much for that message. I needed that. This has been a very difficult season, and I'm so grateful. And he did something that 
pastors are not known for, he just remained completely silent. And he actually just stood there, put his hand on my chest, and just stood there. And we had this really beautiful, awkward moment together. I don't do this with anyone, much less strangers. And, uh, and he just smiled at me, and he just stood there with me. And then he walked away. And I was telling my wife afterward, I was like, that was so beautiful and holy, and I don't know what to do with it. We were driving back, and I, I thought, I think he was teaching me something. He was teaching me how to fight silence with silence. Meaning when we're in that place where we don't feel like God is like showing up and making it so obvious, maybe he is showing us how to respond because my nature, I don't know about yours, is I start trying to pull every lever known to man. And I'm trying to pull every podcast out, every journal thing. What trick have I done in the past that'll work? What book have I read? I'm trying to make it work. And sometimes in all of that, what we need to do is what the name of this series is, which is just pause. Let our souls catch up with our bodies and stop attuning to our surroundings and attune to God and see what he wants to say and do in us. And so if you came to church this morning, this is actually part two of this series called Pause. And I just have to think that there might be some people who are here. You've had a really long week. But for some of you, you've been in a really long season. And it feels like maybe you're in a brain fog or maybe you're running at slow motion or the way you used to connect with God is not, as, as, it's not feeling the same way. And so you don't know what to do about that. And if so, then I'm hoping that this series, but also this message today could give you some hope in the midst of everything. Actually, I'm hoping two things happen and occur to you today in this message. This is where we're going. And I'm hoping that number one, it's this, that you will leave thing, saying, I'm not going crazy. And second, you'll realize that God is up to something. So why don't we just say that all together, okay? One, two, three. I'm not going crazy. God is up to something. But I want to warn you what he's up to is probably not what you think he's up to. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at someone in the Bible today who found that out for sure. His name is David. A lot of your, what's called Old Testament for us, is, uh, is, speaks to a lot of this. And so if you don't know the story of David, um, he has been secretly anointed as king. The king, the actual king, King Saul, does not know about that. But King Saul is being tormented by evil, that he needs some help. He hears about a prodigy named David from Bethlehem who can come and play the harp and do all kinds of things. So he brings him into the house. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21 and 22. It says, And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. So David is quickly enjoyed. All is going beautiful for him. Actually, if you flip to the next chapter, chapter 17, you'll see that David has his star studded moment where he kills a giant named Goliath. And so you know, you know his story. You know that everything is going up and to the right. In fact, he's promoted so quickly. He is now over Saul's entire army. All he does is win, 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 no matter what. This is a beautiful time in David's life, but then. Everybody say, but then. All you got to do is flip the page to chapter 18, and now you're at verse 10, and it says, The next day an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, the harp, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, to say this is a curveball is a little bit of a, a massive understatement on our part, okay? Put yourself in David's, in David's place. He's thinking, wait a minute. I was on the back side of a hill with some sheep doing just fine. I didn't ask for this. 
You called me here to serve the king, and I've done so. How did I get in trouble? This is so, so unfair to be where David is. You would understand if he started praying, wait just a second. God, I've been faithful to you. I've been faithful to my king and to my spiritual father. But now either he has lost his mind or I have lost, or I've lost mine. God, where are you? And th- but the problem is, at this point, we're like, the breakthrough's coming, right? Let's sing a little louder and the breakthrough will come. And it gets worse. Uh, verse 12 and 13 says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand. So remember, David's done nothing wrong, but he is now facing diminishment at the best, and he's facing death at worst. If he doesn't use the right move, he's done for. So again, you would be, it'd be normal for David to think, wait a minute, God, I've done my part. Why are you not doing your part? Anybody here be bold enough to say you've actually prayed that prayer before? Anybody along the lines of, God, I'm doing my part. Where are you in the midst of all of this, okay? So I have prayed it many times. And what it does is when I pray that prayer, it reveals that there's a philosophy going on in me I don't know that's going on. And the philosophy is this. It's God, you reward good people and you punish bad people. Now, I don't think that. I don't walk around thinking that. There is some truth to it, actually. But I don't walk around thinking it until something like this happens. And then I realize that this is becoming transactional in me. God, I'm going to do good things. You're going to give me good things. But then the problem is then I go through suffering or I go through a dry season and I'm like, God, I'm doing my part. You're not doing your part. I'm pulling the lever. I'm giving you the sign and you're not doing your thing, right? And so what happens is in that moment, you'll feel like life is breaking down. David is watching the script of his life fall apart. And he's going, how did this happen? Now for us, we often make a lot of bad decisions in that spot right there. People are walking away from God, walking away from the church, walking away from family, walking away from relationships, walking away from all types of things. David doesn't do that. Look at what he does. It says in verse 13, so, um, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. What does it say next? And David marched out and came in leading the army. He's like, okay, you give me a thousand, I'll go lead a thousand. What do you want me to do? He just keeps serving. Saul keeps serving his, his people. Now, he goes on Saul actually gives his daughter to David. It's a trap. It's a, it's a kind of fascinating story. But David navigates that beautifully. So then Saul's son, Jonathan, comes before his own father and says, why are you trying to kill David? He's done nothing but serve you. So because he pleads on David's behalf, things calm down a little bit. But then we're back to chapter 19, verse 8 through 10. What does it say? And there was war, and David went out to fight the Philistines. He launched a heavy attack on them so that they fled before him. Okay, we're back. okay, maybe we're getting back to normal. But then an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand while David was playing music. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Again, it just feels like it's going from bad to worse. Now, I don't know about you. Most of you probably brought phones for your Bible. I actually have a real Bible here. This right here shows you about 20 pages. It's not even 20 pages. In these 20 pages, the story of David's life will unfold. And if I flip this over to chapter 2, verse 4, here's what you're going to find. Verse 4 says, uh, then the people of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So, in these 20 pages, 
it, it moves pretty quickly. You could go home and you could read it probably in an hour, really maybe a couple hours. We watch this beautiful ending. His enemy has been killed. Saul is no longer pursuing him. And now he's been made king. And everything that was prophesied way earlier now comes about. But you might read these very quickly. That less than 20 pages is actually about 15 years of David's life. And in that 15 years, he has probably between his first anointing and becoming king, he has wrestled and tossed and turned and prayed and tried to survive and tried to guess, what do I do, Lord? How do I make all this work? And here's my question. If God's so powerful, why didn't he do something immediately? Is God not powerful enough to handle this? Why didn't he speak? Why didn't he intervene? Why didn't he make, take this the direction that he, he could have taken this? Okay, now, just flip over your Bible to this side. It's called the New Testament. There's a book called Mark. You can do a fascinating study on how many times the word immediately is used. I believe it's 16 times it's used. Someone needed something, and immediately Jesus gave it to him. Immediately God did something. This is one of those times in Scripture where you don't watch immediately. And I wonder if it's because God wants to show you what could be going on in your own 20-page gap. And you're going, Lord, this is not what I expected. I didn't see this coming this direction, and I don't really know what to do. Again, if you're in this place right now, you've been there, you know this is messy space. This is not pretty space. And it can feel like people are jumping up and down in worship, and you're like, what's wrong with me? I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not there. And I'd like to give you a proposal today that maybe the reason it's not happening immediately is not because God's not powerful and it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because that if he gave you something immediately, it would short circuit what he's trying to do in you deeply. So he's doing something that's going to be a little bit more painful and difficult to slow you down, make you pause and do something deeper. All right? Now, a few years ago, I was in one of those spots as well, and I found myself uh, talking to a buddy about it. He said, have you ever heard of Walter Brueggemann? And I said, I had not. And he said, Walter Brueggemann's an Old Testament scholar. He, uh, spe- he specializes in the Psalms, fantastic book called Praying the Psalms. It's really small for all of us who like to read really small books. It's one of those. It's almost got puffy pages. You could really knock this out in a day. Um, and uh, as I read this, I realized Brueggemann said something I had never thought about. He said that the Psalms actually expose three different conditions of human life, and the Psalms actually line up to them, and here's what those three conditions are. He said there's orientation. Orientation, life's going great. Disorientation, my life just flips upside down, and reorientation, or he sometimes called it new orientation, is when all is made new again. Now, Brueggemann makes the point that there's psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, psalms of reorientation. And it makes sense because you go, oh, if David is writing and he's doing great, he's like, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. But you're like in the worst season of your life. You hate that psalm. Right? You're like, why am I reading this? But then you wake up today and you're like, God, you're so good. And I'm going to read the Psalms. And he's like, my tears have been my food day and night. And you're like, David, get it together. Right? So Brueggemann makes the point, if you'll find your, your season lined up to your Psalm, it'll be a prayer that you can pray that becomes a theology inside of you. So I began to kind of wrestle with this. Now, the good thing, from, the thing about me, I don't know about y'all, is I can go through orientation, disorientation, reorientation in the morning. And I'm so grateful that we have David because he could do the same thing. David did the same thing. Let's take Psalm 40. 
I bet a lot of you have read it. If not, you've heard you two sing it, okay? Let's look at where he goes and just, he goes through all three of these in just one psalm. Let's look at Psalm 40. He starts by saying, how happy is anyone who puts his trust in the Lord? Orientation. You move a few verses down to verse 12 and look what he says. Got it up there for me? He says, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. I mean, this is emotional broken David. But then he ends in verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, God is great all the time, all the time. God is great. You watched him move through all those movements in one psalm. We can do the same thing. So what I wanna do here is I wanna break down each of these three real briefly and see if you can relate and also watch David, what we just read about in 1 Samuel. You tell me if you think it lines up. Okay, orientation, one more time. Orientation is a place where everything makes sense in your life. It's like you love God, God loves you. You love people, they most, of, most of those people love you. And things are coherent. They make sense in your life. All is well in your soul. David lives in the palace. He is promoted. He continues to go out and fight giants. His fame spreads everywhere. He's just winning. The only problem is all of life is not coherent. Can the older people say amen? Then you have the disorientation. The world feels upside down. I'm stuck in a pit. I'm moving in slow motion, and I can't get out of it. Here's how you know you found disorientation, because your prayer life is reduced to three words. God, fix it. And when you're really ticked off, you add one more word. Now. All right? So that's, that's how you know you're at disorientation. Disorientation can be so many things. It could be loss in your life. It could be death in your life. A lot of times it's just the unexpected. It's like, oh, I didn't know my parents' health was going to do this. I didn't know my health was going to do this. Like when Liz, when you had your stroke, and you're just like, I didn't know that was going to happen. My life has been disoriented. The man that I met this last week, or his wife actually, said he was in ministry for 33 years, had so much zeal and energy to go forward, his body broke down. He had to get out of ministry and suffered for years going, who am I? My mom passed away three years ago in 2019. My dad was like, I thought my retirement years were going to be spent with my best friend. Now they're not. This is a very disorienting, like, what, what am I doing here, God? And what are you doing here? And you might be in a palace going, wait, this king is delusional. And he's trying to pin me to the wall and demote me, and I've done nothing wrong. Then reorientation, sometimes called the new orientation, is when you find yourself walking into a season of life and healing. And it's kind of strange. You don't know what you did to get here. So people start coming to you going, can you tell me what you did? I, I need that formula. And you're like... I don't know. I, I just, it's just, I just, all of a sudden I'm in love with God and I look back and I realize he wasn't actually absent. He wasn't apathetic. I didn't understand what was going on and I've got some real scars as a result of what I went through, but I'm realizing maybe he wasn't trying to fix me. Maybe he was trying to make me new. So he had to stop my car long enough to pull the engine out and do a complete overhaul on it. And maybe David as you read later, is looking back going, God, you're so beautiful. You had different plans for me. And if I would have fast forwarded, I'd have found my own fast track to become king. But you had a different process for me because you wanted my leadership to be different. And in 2023, people are going to still be reading my journals. 
So maybe there was something I needed to pay attention to that I'm thankful you didn't fast forward. So again, maybe that's why there's these three pieces. Now let's go back and look at them. How many of you have been at orientation before? Life's good, life's good, you're fine. A little crowd participation, okay? How many of you want disorientation in your life? Yeah, that's psycho, all right? Who wouldn't mind reorientation? Who's asking, okay, Carl, what's the formula to move from disorientation to reorientation, right? Or if you're younger, you might be saying, is there a way to go from orientation to reorientation? And all the older, older people in the room are going, well, you know, not really. Uh, there, you know, in this world, you will have trouble. But if you are there, then you start saying, then what is the formula? Or what do I do? What sign do I do to move from here to go down there? Now, here's the deal. Some of you, you do this, you don't even know you do it. You found disorientation. So what you do is, if you follow Jesus a long time, is you pray Psalm 139. Search me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of your life. You know, God, if there's sin in my life, point it out. Or if I've drifted, point it out. Some of you might be at disorientation because of sin you've chosen or because of drifting. If that's your situation, it's not easy, but it is fairly simple. You repent and you come back to your first love. You put spiritual disciplines in your life and God can inaugurate a new beginning in you. The problem is when your problem is none of those things. And you're going, I don't, I don't, I mean, I do sin, I'm a sinner, but I don't have any major sin. I've not drifted. I'm seeking God more than ever, and I feel like I'm getting worse. I'm getting more stuck, more brain fog. It's not working. So what do I do if I'm there? And what I found for myself personally and the hundreds of people I've spoken with since then is that in that place, we don't even know it, but this little lie begins to creep in. I must have done something wrong. Because This is not God. This is not God of the Bible. It's not my worship songs. My worship songs tell me if I go around that mountain one more time, it'll fall. Well, I didn't just march around it seven times. I've walked around it 70 freaking times, and the mountain's not falling. Therefore, I don't know what I did wrong, but I did something wrong. And the shame that grips Christians in this space is really immovable. And so what we tend to do in that place is to numb ourselves. This is why it's the perfect storm of the smartphone coming on at this time in the pandemic because we've all learned how not just to watch a show like we did in the 90s, but how to binge a show in one day. We learned how not just to have to go to the store and buy something, how to one-click everything. We, those things aren't bad. We just kind of learn how to put it away. And the, here's the deal. If you do that and you numb yourself, you can keep your pain at bay. And I, I listed some of the better options. There's a lot worse options. The problem is you'll also keep God at bay. So again, you need to hear God pulling you up close saying in this space, don't numb yourself because I may be removing my felt presence from you, not his presence, but his felt presence from you because he's wanting to make you new and do something deep inside of you. So again, if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, but then what do I do? Actually, there's 150 different chapters in Psalms that show you what to do. And what you do is you get honest. You don't get numb you get the courage to get before God and you get gut-wrenching, people better not hear this prayer session type of honest. And I thought that I was that way until the last couple of years hit and I realized I'm not as honest as I thought I was. And the way I know that is because I was with my counselor and he's like, okay, we're gonna role play. I'm God, you're Carl. Look, nobody's here. 
just say it. Get it out. And I was like, counselors are so weird, you know. <laughs> All right, Bill, I mean, God. Um, where the heck are you? Like, I've been waiting for you to come through, and I know that your arm is not too short to save, and so you will come eventually, but I'm wanting it now, and I don't understand what I did wrong, and I know that you love me, but God, I'm asking for you to give me the breakthrough that I've been seeking for so long. I know you will. I believe you're a good God. And you're like, stop, 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 time out, time out. He goes, you just really pastored God so well. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I can tell you're a pastor, like, you are taking care of God. You're like, it's been hard, but you're going to be okay, God. He's like, I'm telling you, flip it around, because this is the case. If you have to babysit God's emotions, he's not God. If I can shift his emotions by my anger and frustration and make him distance from me the way I do to him, then he's not God. Let's play this all over again. Ready, go. Now, I'm not going to say what I said the next time because I (laughs) did get a little bit more honest and that session hopefully was burned and nobody will ever get to hear what actually I said. But some of you like me, you might need God to come along and say, no, really, you have permission. Be vulnerable. And some of you need to get a journal and you need to write like you've never written before to get it out of your soul. And then you might need to go burn that journal so your kids never find it and read it, you know? Like, you might need to walk into the field and just say, God! And it has to get to that level of honest. And I would propose that most of us only go to about level two when there's about level eight, nine, and 10 we could go to. I'm not saying we lose our fear of God. I'm not saying we walk out there, say all that, and then walk away. I'm saying in our honesty, you'll see he does not budge. He comes close. And again, where do you see this? Because you see it in the Psalms. Again, I didn't see it until my wife and I told you I'm learning from my Catholic friends. We went to a monastery in Portland. We were learning from Benedictine monks. Those people are amazing. I mean, they read, they pray six times a day through the Psalms so that they get through the Psalms every three to four weeks and have them memorized in their 40s and 50s. Very, very amazing people. And so I'm in this room. I don't know what I'm doing. They have this prayer book, and they have us turn to Psalm 140, and they sing song. It's like a chant, like a Gregorian chant. So they'll be like, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be lifted up in the earth. So you learn the chant. You learn to sing. Well, then they get us to Psalm 140. And that's when I realized, wow, I don't, surely they're not going to have us sing this. And they do. Let's look at Psalm 140. Here's, here's what they had us do. There's, we're singing. They make their tongue sharp as a snake's, and under their lips is venom of vipers. Let burning coals fall on them. Let them be flung into pits no more to rise. <laughs> Selah. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Just like you're laughing, I'm sitting there, and I am holding the book over my head, and I am shaking. I'm laughing. My wife is just pounding like, we are with the monks, you know, and I'm like... And I look over at my leader, John Ortberg, if y'all know him, he's there. He's got his book, he's cracking up. We're all just laughing our head off because as pastors, we know what to do when we're preaching through that. We just put a little dot, dot, dot. And y'all don't have to read that. And David's like, you know what you can do with your dot, dot, dot? Like David's like, no, God, I want venom in the mouth of my enemies. And I want their face to melt because fire is on their face. And and here's what you, you don't see God going, now that was a little overboard, David. That was a little much. There's no correction. There's just a, say la, you know, like pause and think about that. And I was like, wow, God actually is welcoming our honesty. 
Again, why? Because he's not trying maybe to fix you and make you better and spin you back out there. He's bringing you into a new orientation, but it will require an honesty where you meet him in a very, very difficult place. Now, the, way, the only way to get this, I hope that you can get this, is to understand, once I've been honest, now what? Does that make it work? Like I come back to the house and I'm like, wow, I just felt revival. Maybe. But it may just be one more part of the process. And so what do you do next? Come on, Carl, give me something. Give me the sign. And this is where it gets a little bit discouraging because it's not so easy. Because it might require that you actually just sit in that honest place and just be with God. Maybe the best way to picture this is with a child, okay? We got any, do we have a kid in the room? We got one. Bring up, let's bring it up here. One just left crying. We'll see if this one does too. I lifted weights yesterday so that I would be prepared for my left arm to hold this beautiful, amazing kid. Hi, Luke. Everybody say hi. Everybody say hi, Luke. <laughs> he likes that. He likes this. He loves it. I love, I love it. I love seeing you up here, Luke. Luke's got a little trick he's going to do, okay? Luke, wave at everybody. No, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. With your hands, I need you to wave at everybody. All right. Can we smile? No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, Andrew and Emily, are you watching? He's going to take his first steps right now in front of the entire church. Are you all ready? Here we go. Luke, go for it. Walk. You're not doing it. You're really not doing it. You're messing the whole illustration up. You're not doing it. Now, here's what's interesting. Y'all aren't listening to a word I'm saying. Y'all are just like, just staring at this amazing, beautiful, passionate, gosh, Andrew, this is your kid. Wow. <laughs> amazing, amazing little man. And actually, none of y'all thought actually that he would smile on cue, walk on cue, wave on cue. And y'all still aren't listening to me. You're still just staring at him. You're fascinated with this kid. And what you're watching happen before you may be the very thing God wants you to do with him. And you're like, but I'm supposed to wave. I'm supposed to smile. And yet, there's no pressure on this kid whatsoever. Actually, the only pressure right now is on me. If I drop him, that would be really bad, wouldn't it? That'd be really bad. <laughs> that would be so bad. We practiced that little cue right before the service started. If I drop him, his parents, his grandparents that I'm close to will not appreciate that whatsoever. So the pressure is on me to hold him fast, not on him. Most of us aren't really good at that. Andrew, I'm going to let you take this kid, even though I want to hold him for the rest of our time. Well done, Luke. You were amazing. Best sermon illustration of my life right there. <laughs> Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I just have to wonder if some of you are in a David-type 20-page moment, maybe like me, where you're going, what's the sign? It's not connecting. If you just need to come to him as a child and let his relentless love pursue you. Actually, I, I didn't like that song, Relentless Love, when it first came out. I mean, I mean Reckless Love. I didn't like it because I was like, God's love's not reckless. Like, reckless? It doesn't make sense. I like the tune until I heard the author say that actually that God is not a reckless one 
but his love is reckless towards himself. That his love put his own life on the line so that his son Jesus would die, take our punishment, pain, and shame, come back to life. It was not reckless towards us. It was reckless towards himself. And I began to sing that song in whole new ways and realized that maybe God wanted me to do is to be that child that just sits there and I'm not a good sit there guy. I pull levers. I make things happen. To pause is really hard. And I bet if it's true for me, I bet it's true for some of you. So what I thought we would do to end up end our time is I'd like to take you back to where we began. I'd like to maybe teach all of us how to fight silence with silence. This may not be the moment where I'm like, but we're going to do this thing. We're going to pray this thing. When you walk out of here, you're going to be 100% different. It actually might be that you're not 100% different. It's all better. But you're going to be able to be that child. Because Jesus said, come to me as a child. So why don't you do me a favor? If you're holding something, just put it down. Whether it's your phone, your journal, whatever. Just put it down for a second. I, I mentioned that this priest, he you know, taught me about how to fight silence with silence. As a pastor, I feel like I've spent the last 25 years teaching people how not to do silence. In life group, we know how to fill the space so that it's not awkward silence between people talking. We have a cue every week in worship to bring the worship leader up here to get that thing going on the keyboard so that it's not silent. So we actually know how to make things flow from one thing to another. So I told Skylar, I want you to come out and not play. Meaning, what I want us to be able to do right now is to do what I've been learning to do, which is just to sit in silence. And I don't mean sit in silence like, God, would you speak to me? I mean, this is where you're Luke, and you just point your heart towards God, your eyes towards God, and you just let God point his eyes of love towards you. And that's it. I do this every, every time I preach. I spend time doing this. I do this between meetings for 30 seconds. I just sit there. And in the silence, I am reminded that regardless of what I do, I'm held as a child of God. And that's enough. And so this is going to be hopefully kind of like it was with that priest that day, beautiful and awkward. So I want to encourage you to close your eyes for a moment. And just take a few deep breaths, breathing in and breathing out. sure there'll be little noises here and there, but for the most part, I just want to encourage you for the next 30 seconds, 45 seconds, to sit in complete silence. You're not saying anything. God might say anything, but that's not the point. It's just you are directing your eyes of love towards him and letting his eyes of love look at you.
how that was for you. I wonder if the second you went quiet, all your thoughts started coming up, and you're like, wait, I'm not supposed to think about anything. And most of the time when we get quiet, what's on the inside of us starts kind of getting activated, maybe even things we didn't know. And it can start to kind of jeopardize that, and we'll start to pray or maybe pull back. But again, the reminder here is you're teaching your body, you're teaching your, your soul, I don't have to do anything, and he loves me wildly regardless. So I want to do it one more time. Again, just close your eyes and just be in his presence. You're just a child sitting in his father's arms in silence before him. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand to our feet together? Skylar, you can play now. We can. God, God can move in silence and in sound. And I, we're just going to sing this song together as a, as a psalm, as a way of pouring our heart out to the Lord. Our ministry team is going to come forward. And it might be for some of you, you're in disorientation and you need someone to pray with you to... Just, just to be able to walk through this journey as God's building something new inside of you. Others maybe need to walk away from sin and drifting into something new. Others maybe walk towards Jesus for the first time into new life. And some of you, even while this song is being sung, you might just need to start getting honest with the Lord and just sit in his presence and let the silence be between you and him where he speaks his love to you. So as our team comes, I just want to pray over us as we sing this song together. Jesus, I am so grateful that you love us with a a wild, relentless, unending love. And some of us in the room, we're experiencing that right now and others are not so experiencing it so much and your felt presence doesn't feel clear. Maybe there's been some guilt that we've done something wrong. And we need you to just show up and hold us. We need you to show up and be Father. And I pray that even this week would be a week of pausing, moving towards that childlike faith. Wherever we are in this journey, Lord, like David, we come before you to be still and know that you are God. And we worship you.